welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. We've got a great show planned for you today. Of course we do. We spent all week trying to figure out who are the best guests we can get, most important topics. Well, Dave Yeager is going to be with us, an excellent oil analyst, just talking about the state of the world, including in Canada, and some of the, I'd call, very puzzling decisions we've made, at least on a political level, about not taking advantage advantage of our resources. Plus, I've got Neil McIver with me uh, talking about portfolio construction after a disaster, you know, 222, and what to do in 2023. We'll talk about that. Also got Victor Adair on gold. Uh, we'll give you an update on that. It's had an incredible move since September. I got Mike Levy joining me. Also, I've got a goofy award. I hope you stay tuned for it. It seems like the th- the theme of this show is the World Economic Forum, but I didn't mean it to be. But wait till you hear my quote of the week. But first, the world's political and business elites have gathered in Davos, Switzerland, as you've heard, for the World Economic Forum. Something like 116 billionaires, politicians, including our own deputy prime minister and a trustee, by the way, of the World Economic Forum, Christia Freeland, plus the Minister of International Trade, Mary Ng, along with CEOs of you know, major firms like BlackRock's and Pfizer. An estimated, though, 2,700 leaders from 130 countries including 52 heads of state and government are there, along with an estimated 5,000 security-related personnel. I got this thing thinking that all with Tears for Fears classic, everybody wants to rule the world, playing in the background and in every elevator. By the way, that image is helped by the unmistakable resemblance of the World Economic Forum's founder, Klaus Schwab, to Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers movies. But interesting to note how many mainstream media greeted the opening of the World Economic uh, Forum, with comments like the following from CBS News, in quotes, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting has increasingly become a target of bizarre claims from a growing chorus of commentators who believe the forum involves a group of elites manipulating global events for their own benefit, end of quote. By the way, that's ironically right out of this year's forum session on misinformation. You might notice, though, that claiming something is a conspiracy is the go-to method of discrediting a person or a statement, whatever, that doesn't fit the establishment narrative. You know, like it was a conspiracy that social media giants like Twitter and Facebook were censored, censored well-credentialed critics of the government's COVID response at the request of the FBI and government. But as I hope you know, it wasn't a conspiracy at all. It was true. As for the World Economic Forum... I'm not going to debate the semantics of whether the World Economic Forum wants to manipulate global events for their own benefit. But what I will say is that they do have a very clearly stated, spelled out agenda. Remember, build back better. That's the World Economic Forum slogan, as is the Great Reset. World Economic Forum members include Prime Minister Trudeau, who saw COVID-19 as an opportunity to accelerate what Schwab called the Great Reset. You know, he published a book. I mean, it was no secret. His book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, was released in July 2020. A few days later, on July 13th, well, actually, it's a few days earlier, July 13th, 2020, the World Economic Forum website published the article in quotes, to build back better, we must reinvent capitalism. The agenda is clear. By the way, build back better was a slogan immediately co-opted as the campaign slogan by the federal liberals, U.S. Democratic Party, U.K. Conservative Party as well as organizations like the European Central Bank. As Schwab states in his book, in quotes, this pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. 
This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. Now, that was a theme echoed by Prime Minister Trudeau in September 2020. He stated COVID was a chance to reimagine the economy, reimagine capitalism, which in practice is just saying, hey, we want much bigger government, more government control. And I think the Liberals have already got a good start on that. You look at the job growth in the federal government, twice the rate of the private sector since they came to power. The ultimate goals of the World Economic Forum are not shrouded in secrecy. They're not a conspiracy theory. They've been upfront about the goals, but not upfront about the methods, and just as importantly, not upfront about the cost of achieving them. But maybe, maybe we got a hint that may change because at Davos, world, I mean, rather U.S. climate czar John Clary stated this week, the only way to get to 1.5 degree of global warming is in his words, money, 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 money. Yes, he repeated the word money seven times for emphasis. I think that's an important admission given we've never, we never do a cost-benefit analysis of climate policy, so when the cost hits us, we're always surprised. I mean, come on, it's easy when a pollster phones you up to say, I'm concerned about climate change. But the question is, how much are you willing to pay? See, I, I noticed that a lot of people didn't like $2 a liter gas or nearly $2.50 in Vancouver. Well, just wait for $3.50 a liter, $4 a liter when the carbon tax reaches $170 a ton in the next seven years. Food prices are already compounding at 11% every month this year, or last year rather, food prices did double digits. And why? Because it's due to higher fuel, feed and fertilizer costs, which are largely a result of the no fossil fuels climate policies. My point is that you can support the reimagining of the economy, you can support more restrictions on your personal choices, like the car the government's going to allow you to buy. We've already done that in Canada. You can support restrictions on how much you're allowed to drive, as was proposed in the Swedish Riksdag this week. Or as Al Gore said at the two, uh, COP26 in November 221, they're going to be able to track an individual's carbon footprint, which will allow them to reward or punish individuals. Obviously, many people support bigger government more regulation, less individual freedom. I know that, especially in the name of climate change. Fair enough. But the various political parties, I think, got to be upfront about it. What are you specifically going to do? Come on, we've had 20 years of climate talk. Time for details, including costs. And then show respect for the voter. They can decide at that point. But I suspect that's what they don't want to have happen. I don't see anything coming out of the World Economic Forum that suggests that they respect the average citizen that they're in favor of voting on these important issues. I could say more on that, but I'll leave it for now. And by the way, I will come back to the elites at the World Economic Forum in the quote of the week and the observation of a man who wrote Fooled by Randomness, which Fortune named as one of the smartest 75 books of the last, whatever it was, 50 years. Hey, just a reminder though, and I am going to remind you, we're only two weeks away from our own World Outlook Conference. No, it won't be full of elites. It'll be full of people like you and top analysts. But I really look forward to it. A chance to chit-chat with people, uh, talk with some of these analysts. That's a really rare opportunity. I mean, the likes of talking with Tony Greer or Joseph Schachter or Greg Weldon, you know, that kind of thing. We've got the whole Money Talks team coming. So I think it's going to be a terrific event. Lots of time there. Lots of stuff on both personal finance, on broad outlook, 
and also on specifics about uh, stock recommendations or commodity recommendations, you name it. That's what we're doing there. So I hope you do join us. It's just two weeks away. If you've been waiting, don't wait any longer. There is a limited number of people we can let in the room. Uh, it's at the Western Bayshore. They're looking forward to it. Man, it's been a long time since we've been back in person, and we're going to take advantage of it. I'm really pleased to welcome to the show David Yeager. David is a, a well, an analyst, first and foremost, energy policy analyst, uh, but he's an author. He's written for the uh, Calgary Herald. The list is a long one of looking at what's going on in the oil industry internationally, but of course, within Canada. Uh, David, thanks for taking the time. First of all, I do appreciate because it's the most timely subject we can come up with. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It is my favorite subject. Well, let's talk about it just for a second and just to set the table kind of, um, what have you seen changed in terms of the attitudes toward energy, government policy toward energy, and just uh, maybe, and I know this is, I feel like Barbara Walters' nightmare. I'm giving you 73 questions at once, but, ah! you know, let's start yeah, with that. There's the pre-COVID era, to make it simple, when energy was cheap and abundant, liquidity was fine, interest rates were low. Uh, but most important, energy was unbelievably cheap. The price of oil had collapsed. The price of gas had collapsed. Security supply was not an issue. Uh, that was a market into which, uh, thanks to quantitative easing and the robustness of the economy, thanks in part to low energy prices, we could dream about an energy transition. So I think to understand the current state of the energy transition, we have to understand the situations in which it was conceived. So the era of low inflation, low interest rates, unbelievably cheap energy, peace in the world and an abundance of energy. So what does the energy transition look like when that's all gone? And that's what we have today. You know, the COVID uh, supply chain issue was one thing. Uh, there was underinvestment in new supplies of oil and gas for a lot of reasons. You know why? You know, because that's what we were told to do. That was God's work was not, you know, it was bad to invest in new oil. Commodity prices were low, so that, that underinvestment, even the International Energy Agency warned about this years ago. And then so those series of events came up. The economy woke up and then, all, then the Russia invaded Ukraine and cut off the, one, the largest suppliers of oil in the world, gas and coal in the world. Holy cow. And so the, the, the era in which the energy transition was conceived and the area we're in today, I think, is more materially different than people appreciate. What stuns me is the stubbornness of the old voices thinking that this is just a hiccup and we could play the old, the old game the same way. I don't see any chance of that. It's incredible, though. I mean, your point's so well taken. I mean, first of all, the, the entire environment's changed. I mean, money isn't near as cheap, obviously. But I'm looking at if you want to do renewables, look at the price of copper, look at the price of lithium. You know, we're in a commodity bull market or, or sorry, arguably one, but prices are certainly higher than when they were first talking about this pre-COVID, uh, you know, and and as you say, then you start getting to other things. The energy is more expensive. I mean, the list is just a long one. And to not appreciate that that is a material change in the environment which I agree with you has not been fully appreciated, but I'm saying to not appreciate that, I find mind-boggling. I think one of the factors is the urbanization of uh, 21st century society, where uh, there's, a, and this is not just Canada, but the world, and more importantly, live, uh, live in big cities and uh, are less connected to the supply chain that things are dug up by fewer people in increasingly remote places. So when you live in a big urban center where the votes are, and where the trends are set and where governments are elected, 
gasoline is it's on the corner, right? Where does it come from? Who cares? Electricity is a switch on the wall. Food is in the grocery store. Uh, everything's been cheap. The economy has been doing well. There's been no shortages of everything. You know, what we'll do is we'll with these phantom energy transitions where we'll we'll just dig a bunch of stuff up and nobody has any idea what it means when you need this much lithium or this much copper. Where does it come from? What is the carbon footprint of build, building a wind turbine? These were not uh, these were not important issues to anyone. And now they're looming large. <laughs> In in the whole in the whole resource supply chain, the whole commodity supply chain. So again, that goes back to the pre-COVID era when there was lots of everything. Price didn't matter uh, because it was cheap, and that's all changed now. So it is uh, the, the last people to figure it out are some of the governments that we've elected, simply because they ran on uh, a lot of them ran on the, the pre-COVID platform and the pre-COVID issues. But I believe the the way I do it when I do these speaking engagements is. Pretty well, everybody gets their information from their smartphone. So what's happened now is the smartphone has been replaced by the wallet as your primary source of what you're thinking about and what decision you'll make next. Uh, you know, it, uh, we've also got that spectacle and your distinction between what's happening in Canada and elsewhere. But that spectrum of what's happened in Europe, you know, is... is you know, again, I, I, I keep coming up with cliches like game changer and things like that. But the point is there that this is a dramatic shift. I mean, uh, I suspect that we'll never see energy prices back down to where they were. You know, we'll be celebrating when gas goes back down from $4 a liter <laughs> down to the two fifty we cried about earlier, uh, you know, this year. Or last yeah, year. well, the, <clears throat> I think Canadians probably take it for granted. <clears throat> I did some research last summer and discovered that Alberta had the lowest natural gas prices in the world. Uh, market set gas prices due to supply and, and restriction. And of course, uh, the hydroelectricity, we get 60% of our electricity from hydro. <clears throat> Fortunately, it's unaffected by all the things we're talking about. You know, there's a plant, the dams are built, the wires are in place, there's no supply chain issues. So we're uh, we're actually able to, to, we read about these things, but we're not actually experiencing them at the level that they are in Europe and Asia and these other places, particularly places like Japan that are net, well, that are net energy importers. And the, what that does is it, it, it helps you make, it makes you make the wrong decisions, if you will. Uh, but I do think that the, the Canada is a member of G7, G20, and NATO. And I've said many times that it could be foreign forces of our G7, G20, and NATO commitments may have more impact on domestic policy, energy policy than we'll have on our own. But I just, you know, for example, just the other day, uh, the Japanese president or prime minister was in town looking for more LNG. My personal view is Mitsubishi sent them. Mitsubishi is a partner in LNG Canada, which is going to the second phase. I think that if Mitsubishi asked the prime minister for more gas, he couldn't do it. But when Japan comes to Canada and sees the prime minister and said, we need LNG because we don't want to buy it from Russia anymore. That is a very, I don't really know how you can say no to that. You can obfuscate, same as the German uh, guy did. We, I mean, that's regrettable. He sort of, the prime minister got eaten alive for that one. <clears throat> we'll send you green hydrogen maybe in 2025. What do you think of that? But it's, uh, these, are, these are powerful forces that are at play. And we are a member of the international community as we're all learning the hard way. And so I'm, I think we're, we're, we've got, uh, for an energy rich country with, uh, massive reserves of oil and gas that the world needs. I think there's a, a, a big change in how we're we're going to look at this. 
let me just come back to Japan and Germany, but Germany's a, you know, instructive in that, no, we said, we're not going to send you LNG, basically. They go to Qatar and they sign this incredible multi-billion dollar deal. So my point is this, we did nothing to reduce emissions, if that is your number one goal in life. Nothing. I mean, there was, it didn't stop natural gas from being produced, didn't stop the Germans from using it. You know, Qatar again sends it over. Go to the Japanese. Is anybody doubting for a second they're getting natural gas? It's just from whom? So there's no net gain there. Canada forgoes unbelievable amounts of money. Like, I mean, I've, I've seen estimates, you know, tens, twenties, hundreds of billions of dollars in, in revenue jobs government revenue too, et cetera, et cetera. But there was no gain in that. It's not like Japan's going to say, well, we're not going to use that energy. Well, it's never been about uh, international emissions. If it was about global emissions, we'd be selling uh, China and Asia and China and India all the LNG they can handle. It's not. It's about domestic politics and staying in power. Uh, in all fairness to the prime minister, and I won't do this very often, uh, is, uh, is he did say that there was no business case for East Coast LNG business case defined as uh, the Quebec was offside. He said that in the prelude to the Quebec election. And of course, uh, that's a, the, what Quebec does is very important to the current federal administration. And there is a pipeline issue running through the U.S. So that we, but he, uh, uh, but he didn't say that we wouldn't, you couldn't, we couldn't get LNG, but so I, we have to be a bit careful there, but. Uh, but I, I thought he was just so glib about it though. I mean, that was an instant response to something that's serious. And now we find Louisiana, you know, shipping enough to fuel 50,000 homes in Germany on that new floating LNG port. I'm just saying it was the glibness that bothered me. This it's is a serious pretty- question to be examined. It's uh, absolutely staggering when you've got a trillion dollars in debt that uh, that you would say that uh, the world cannot have uh, the most responsibly supplied oil and gas in the world uh, because, and the subtitle is, so I can win the next election. I mean, the idea that, that Canada, as a G7, G20 NATO member, can hoard its resources, say you can't have that. Well, why? Well, the reasons why are really unsustainable. So that's why I kind of go to the big picture. That's why I keep coming back that, the you know the uh, written in a couple of my articles the invinc- the invisible hand of Adam Smith is going to punch Canada in the nose <laughs> wake us up to the realities of the global marketplace and for those of us in uh, in Western Canada with our massive landlocked resource base and all the battles we've fought I actually think we're in better shape now than we were. I mean, the world's in trouble, but that's another thing that if you go back in history, Alberta and the rest of the world have never done really well at the same time. So maybe, maybe it's our turn. If you were going to close your eyes, uh, you know, uh, and look out two to three years, where do you think pricing is going to be, for example, for, you know, WTI, for example, or Brent crude? Um, it's not going to be materially lower. Um, if you look at the reinvestment ratio, the decline rates, I think the average decline rate is something like uh, 5% a year. And in the oil sense, it's zero. So I don't see any relief with the, the if you go back to the past oil crises of the early 70s and even the one in 08 when oil hit $147 a barrel. In both of those cases, in the first, in 73, it was OPEC. Actually, that was a, that was solved by the Western countries. That was the North Slope of Alaska, the North Sea, the oil sands a little bit, uh, Asia. It was interesting. None of the OPEC guys came to the table with the extra supply. So it was the Western world that, that solved that problem at that time. And then in 08, when oil hit 147 bucks, it was Canada and the U.S., the oil sands in Canada and the shale in the States. 
uh, put on 10 million barrels a day and collapse the price. And so the point is, is that the countries that historically have righted the global supply-demand balance are, for the moment, out of the game for political reasons. That is my, that's the underpinning of the thesis that I think we're going to have to go through a pile of hurt to get the capital back in the ground to develop the oil and gas we need to stabilize prices. Now, this is new enough. It's not even a year since uh, Russia uh, rolled into Ukraine. It took a long time to create this mess, like 15 years from the tar sands campaign and and, and the anti-fossil fuel movement. So I'm doing uh, all of that work in 12 months or 18 months going back to the fall of 21. That's not enough time, but I do believe that the general trend, if you look as uh, as you look at the world and coal's going to all-time record highs and people have got the chainsaws out in Europe and cutting down trees to not starve, fortunately, without a warm winter. These these are very powerful forces that, that you just can't. Uh, as I've said, uh, I've, I've written many times, the f- 8 billion people all over the world wake up every morning and say, what do I need to do to get through the day? And their decisions will be based on availability, cost, and short-term thinking. So that's that's a powerful force that can't be harnessed. They want energy. They want it cheap. They want it now. And you can go have World Economic Forum meetings and, and G7 meetings till hell freezes over. That's an uncontrollable force of the market. That's going to drive the bus. Uh, if you Go ahead. Well, I, I, on that, that score, I mean, it's one of my criticisms. I've ha- I have lived in India myself for about 14 months at one point and traveled through that area for longer. And I was always astounded that we, one of the underlying demand features was going to be, are we really thinking these countries aren't going to develop further, aren't going to raise their standard of living, oh, yeah. isn't their politics based on that? Yeah. And I mean, we're talking powerful forces, as you just said. I mean, look what India's done already in increasing coal production, increasing, you know, commitment to nuclear, you know, buying Russian oil, you know, I mean, that's just one. I mean, obviously, it's going to be the most populous nation in the world coming up in a few years, but it's still just one factor. I mean, if we think that we, we completely ignore the impact of the developing world, we've done it at every COP, COP 21, COP 27, yeah, no, COP 27. Yeah. It's like these, you know, I could get very uh, controversial with how I describe what they're doing. You don't have to. The numbers speak for themselves. What's that noise? Is the way I like to describe it. It is the 6.7 billion people that don't live in the OECD countries. That's the noise. What I get a kick out of uh, when I want to know what's really going on in the world, uh, both uh, International Energy Agency, or all three actually, and BP and, and OPEC every fall do a global oil outlook. And OPEC's world is, is selling 6.7 billion people what they need. And IEA's world, because they're funded by the, it's really an arm of the OEDC. You know, they're still living in the people uh, and under the under the framework of the people that write their checks that this energy transition is underway. And if you look at uh, if you look at say 2050, and you look at the net zero by 2050 forecast from the IEA or BP, and you look at OPEC's real world forecast for the same period. Uh, the spread is about 70 million barrels a day. <laughs> OPEC's up to 110 million barrels a day. And all the other people say we got to be down to 35. So one one wants to put shut 70 million barrels a day in and the other's got to develop another 10. That is quite a spread. And uh, and so I'm, I'm with OPEC. I, I, I gain. I, that's the power, the power of uh, that many consumers do, doing what they need to stay alive. 
Uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned I want to come back to because I think it's not appreciated in the broad discussion, obviously with analysts like yourself, but the broad discussion is how much we need to develop just to get to the replacement level to keep the same. Oh, I know. For five million well, barrels a day. Yeah, and five I think that's a day. Yeah, five to seven million barrels a day. That's what I meant by the decline rate. Yeah. Yeah, that of natural reservoirs. Yeah, the only uh, oil fields in the world without a high decline rate are the oil sands. Uh, because the resort is is, li is limitless, the resor uh, resource is limitless. But yeah, the rest of the world has to do uh, has to put on five million barrels a day, just to hold its own. And we're way behind on that. And that's why I go. That's why I said earlier, the countries that move the needle when uh, Canada and the U.S. and and from after 08, after our oil hit 147 bucks a barrel, that's what, uh, putting on 10 million barrels a day. That's what collapsed the price. Well, the the people that can move quickly and have the technology and the ability and the capital, should they be so inclined, are, for political reasons, out of the game. We'll see how long that lasts. Uh, again, this is, but I, I'll come back to, you. we sort of touched on the politics of it earlier. This is why the no fossil fuels, though, is so unrealistic. I mean, we need to replace 5 million barrels a day, and we're saying, oh, don't drill anything new. I mean, I'm saying politically, there's a group that says don't drill anything new. And it's the impracticality of how we've approached all of this. You know, the renewable transition, fine. You think you're doing it without oil? You think you're doing it without diesel, for example, for the machinery? But that's exactly how we've discussed these things. It's not a debate about climate change or not climate change. It's just practical versus completely head in the clouds BS. It is. Uh, they call the science of climate. You know, they say the science is settled. But uh, the science of energy was thrown out the window for years ago, the science of physics. And so what we have done is invented an energy transition without physics or science. And so they somehow, and this goes back to the urbanization. Other factors, the smartphone is where you get your news. And uh, the politicians know this. Uh, but the, the notion is, is that we can replace jet, jet fuel with solar panels. Now, it takes, a, it takes a quite a set of circumstances to have your brain shut off. That's that pre-COVID area. And that goes back to the internet, the, the handphone versus the wallet. So there was a time that, that energy, you know, there's very little understanding of the supply chain where anything comes from. That's why that's so important to understanding the quantum shift we've gone through. And so the voices of uh, the ones that keep saying no more fossil fuels, I mean, that's, that's become an industry, Michael, in the, last, in the last 15 years. These people make a living out of this this energy transition and terrifying people. And it's going to be a little hard to, to, get, to replace them all. But I'm finding the narrative is changing. Even the IEA at, uh, at World Economic Forum, uh, you know, Greta did the usual. And even the International Energy Agency is, is and, and of course, that's because their political masters are admitting, allowing them to do that. Because the IEA does pretty well parrots whatever the check writers tell them to do and so it's different now and so we're uh, the idea that we're going to make net zero by 2050 i mean uh, well we everybody said that because life was simpler that way so they didn't get gang mobbed on social media uh, but uh, but in the end the reality is hitting home at different speeds in different places certainly it's all on in europe right now isn't it well, coming back to what you said earlier, I mean, the reality is I just saw my electricity bill go up. And, and what's, what's not appreciated wasn't only sanctions. September 221, Great Britain was already exper experiencing their electricity bills going up multiple amounts. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I think it was 1,200% at one point, you know, in September and October. And But it comes back to the other is that 
and I've said this a million times on this show, just because I'm flabbergasted by it. It was a news flash that the sun doesn't shine at night and produce power. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Well, that's what well, I That's how they acted. You know, that's how they acted. And so your your point about you see a transition there, and I, I agree with you, but it's slow, but it's also just the reality hit. You know, do you really want to have no power? No. So Germany becomes the biggest coal user, you know, in Europe. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. know. And it's uh, but that's just what I meant about uh, the the visible hand punching the world in the nose. I think that there is a big reality check that people weren't ready for, and the last people to figure it out is I. I you know, in, in a way, the the situation of the current federal administration is tragic. In a way, uh, they start going back to uh, you know the twenty fifteen campaign. Let's revisit that. You know, Trudeau pledged, "I will kill the Northern Gateway Pipeline." I will re I will get rid of the National Energy Board because those idiots keep uh, keep approving pipelines. And then there was the tanker ban. If you look at all the things, they were all climate all the time. I think part of the problem is if you are political, if you if you've uh, won elections on this, and many governments have in, in various parts of the world, and the energy pricing isn't yet a crisis, certainly in Canada. What do you what do you pivot to? What do you what do you do as as a party? Do you do you say no? Oh, just kidding. Yeah, I just yeah, I'm just sorry about that. So I'm yeah. looking at I'm looking at the policies that have come out, the emission caps and the just transition and the EVs by 2035, and um, and all the you know the fertilizer bans and all that stuff. And they're still they're still chirping off the pre-COVID 2019 and the 20, 2021 election and playbook. And there's this sinister plot, particularly in Calgary, with this just transition. Everybody says they're going to put us out of the oil business. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually more inclined to think they don't actually know what to do. This is a time where you need really hard, really strong economic policy. You know, a firm hand on the tiller, kind of like Stephen Harper as he took us into the world financial crisis of 0809. That's the kind of person you need. And the trouble is, certainly at the federal level. Uh, the, the, there's nobody around like that. I mean, Bill Morneau's recent book is evidence of that. Yeah, I think his book was really telling. It was confirmed some of my worst fears that virtue yeah. signaling and popularity were more important than the numbers. And again, you know, that's another debate. But I mean, that's coming right out of, you know, the former finance minister saying that kind of thing, that those weren't top of mind. But I can list several former heads of the Bank of Canada say we can't discern any forward economic policy other than immigration you know adding to the economy but no other policy uh, certainly no policy to leverage our you know god blessed advantage of oil and uh, oil and gas but let me come just quickly i don't want to run out of time without asking about the canadian side of you know the canadian oil patch generally as an investment going forward i'm uh I guess I can say this on this program because uh, it was public yesterday, but I have uh, um, just been appointed uh, by Premier Smith as the chairman of the, uh, of the Premier's Advisory Council on the Alberta's Energy Future. And I haven't quite seen the paperwork yet, but she said it at the Peters Conference in, in, in Banff Lake Louise yesterday, so I guess it must be true. Um, should I say con should I say congratulations or my I, condolences know, I, or my I'm condolences? <laughs> I've been a businessman so long that what I learned in, in many twenty five years in public capital markets is you underpromise and overdeliver. So to say something, well, I don't even have a business card yet. But the whole point is this is absolutely top of my mind. Is what do we do here? And I think that I think that uh, 
the Alberta, the, we've got some real structural barrels. I mean, the problem is if you're looking at the balance sheet of a, of a producer today, and, and everybody said the reinvestment ratio, this is from a very technical point of view, the reinvestment ratio is the lowest in history. I mean, the amount of cash they handle. But right now there's pressures on insurance, like these people are looking at possibly having to be self-insured. What does that mean? They're looking, there's still the ESG investment movement is affecting their balance sheet. So they're delevering. I mean, Birchcliff, for example, I know Jeff Tonkin, he claims that he's going to be debt-free by the end of the year because he thinks that's what he needs to be flexible. You've got this carbon ceiling coming in and how much capital do I need for that? So I can see the behavior of the, of the C-suite on the E&P side of, of not, of not you know, increasing production or not, not taking on new projects with this cloud hanging over. Uh, that being said, uh, the default uh, behavior of these producers is to increase production. Uh, the supply chain is a cap if you wanted to expand capacity. This is the nuts and bolts of how the business works. It's where I spend most of my time. There are supply chain issues. Uh, they just resolved the Blueberry First Nation land claim two days ago, but there's got, you know, ready to go put the rigs back to work there. So there are external forces at play that, that are capping growth. But the point is, I do believe we're going to see when, uh, when Freeport LNG goes back on, when uh, we start taking 10, uh, 1.8 BCF a day out of the Western Canadian sedimentary basin, 10%, I do see a higher permanent floor price for gas. Uh, higher than it is today. Uh, I mean, even in the States, they're surprised at how low it is. And we talked about oil. So the, um, the commodity prices are going to go up. I don't believe that there will be any more persecution coming on the sector now. They're not going to come up with any more, more ideas on how to make it worse. I think the challenge is from uh, if you're in the business is how much of this is real. Like I'm just examining if you didn't meet your emission caps, would they send in the army? Like, what would they do if you if you didn't meet your 2030 emission cap? Would they shut off the pipeline of the U.S.? I mean, what would they do? And I don't think I know. I, I'm researching this in the Netherlands with the farms. They're looking at buying them. We're not going to buy everything here. So um, I, I'm I'm bullish on the sector. I'm I'm uh, you know in my little and having been invested in the sector all my life. That's all I've ever owned really is uh, is, is service stocks and now some E&P stocks. But overall. I would say that uh, there's a bunch of open road. I mean, if the guys, if they're, excuse me, if they're not happy with their capital programs, then uh, increase the dividend. Well, there's a lot more to talk about with this, Dave. Uh, and look, I, first of all, again, let me say I appreciate you finding time. And I got to put you on the spot and said, we got to visit again in the near future. Because uh, as I say, you want to get a chance in something like this to sort of scratch the, the little bit of the... Uh, of the surface, but all of those things you've just alluded to, again, I think many of them, like the insurance costs going up, et cetera, the, the impact of the cap, all of that is, is going to be somewhat news to a lot of people. So let me put you on the spot and ask you if we can visit again in the near future. Oh, no, I, that's fine. I just got to see what uh, the ground rules are. As uh, Oh, right. Yes, of course. For the crown. I mean, we can always talk about the big picture. I just, yeah. as for the project at hand, I'm not quite sure about that yet. I was even apprehensive about announcing my august new position. But well, no, I'm an energy policy nerd. Uh, I love this province. <laughs> I love this province. I love this industry. And uh, if asked, I will serve. And I'm looking forward to making a positive contribution on a bigger player than bigger plane than just uh, talking to you, which is well, great. Well, what do you mean, just talking to me? No, I'll hold you at that. <laughs> there can't be bigger. There's no bigger than this. Okay, oh. th thanks, David. Much appreciated, though. Yeah, have a great day.
Time now for the quote of the week, and as I promised, back to the World Economic Forum. You know what? I can't help but be impressed by the lack of humility of the elites at these climate fests or the World Economic Forum, given they've been wrong when it comes to major political, well, every major political, financial, and economic issue of our time. I mean, they've got nothing right. Whether we're talking about Brexit, that was a big surprise to them. The election of Donald Trump, oh my gosh. They clearly didn't see the energy crisis hitting Europe, especially, despite the fact that they were the architects of it. And remember, they were calling inflation transitory for well over a year. And there's no indication that they understand the roots of the anti-establishment populist movements, that they're sure is uh, is fueled only by misinformation. And that brings me to the observation of Nazim Tlaib, author of the bestseller, The Black Swan, Fooled by Randomness, and Anti-Fragile, Things that Gain from Disorder. In quotes, what we've been seeing worldwide, from India to the UK to the US, is the rebellion against the inner circle of no-skin-in-the-game policy-making clerks and journalist insiders that class of paternalistic semi-intellectual experts with some Ivy League, Oxford, Cambridge, or similar label-driven education who are telling the rest of us what to do, what to eat, how to speak, how to think, and who to vote for. But the problem is the one-eyed following the blind. These self-described members of the intelligentsia can't find a coconut in Coconut Island. I want to turn my attention to markets right now. Very pleased to have with me Neil McIver, founder of McIver Capital Management at CG Wealth. Neil, appreciate you taking the time for us. And I thought about you the other day in that looking at, obviously we look ahead to 2023, but I'm looking back at 2022. And I love the piece of the advice. You were, you were very cautious in 2022. Uh, you know, you had a big cash component. You kept talking about you were worried about the rise in interest rates. You know, that list, you had a pretty darn good list. You know, uh, and I, in my opinion, doing the first thing that your job is, is risk management. Thanks, Mike. And, and, and I should say to start off, it's fantastic to be here. And thank you for the opportunity to join you and your listeners. And I also want to say that I, I love your new format. Uh, you know, like a great many people, I think the content is even better and more on point than it, than it ever was. But thank you. Um, yeah, 2022 was a terrible year. Uh, we were at your conference in 2022 um, at the beginning of the year. We were also at your conference in 2021 and years before that. But in those two years, I did talk about raising cash inside of portfolios, decreasing exposure to um, uh, the potential for inflation. And that was absolutely critical in terms of what the results were um, at the end of the at the end of this year, because in both cases, we saw an impending problem that was going to strike, which was going to be inflation, which was going to be economic inflation. Previous to that, we had asset inflation where stocks went up, real estate went up, all these different asset classes rose. But um, we knew that it was eventually going to bleed into the economy and prices of everyday household goods were going to go up. And um, so and as that happened, we knew that was going to impact um, uh, the market in a negative way. And and so we were well prepared for it. But, um, you know, 2022 was a, a terrible year. And I think it's important that people understand where financial performance comes from and mathematically the amount you lose in any particular year has a far greater impact on your long-term wealth than how much you may gain in another year. And I think this is really important math for your listeners to understand. And this is what all institutional uh, investors know very well. And that's if you lose 50% of your money, 
it takes 100% to get back to zero. So, you know, even if you get a 7% growth rate, that's going to take you a decade, Michael. Yeah, well, and it's funny, uh, Victor Adair as a trader and me as an investor, I'm more longer term investment. I don't have the emotional makeup to be a trader, but we all both talk about that for that very reason. And unfortunately, I talk about it through experience as opposed to something, yes. I, something I read. You know, as you say, you watch something and you're emotionally attached to it or taking the loss is an emotional is too much emotional pain. So you watch the darn thing drop in half. And as you say, boy, that's a harsh lesson. Gee, I've got a double now you know, to get back to even. That wasn't the point of my investment plan was to have to double to get to even, you know. So I think your yes. point is just so well taken. You yeah. And, and, I, you know, most people, I think, get trapped in that. And I, I think we're all, for an individual individual investors, we're our own worst enemies because we do get trapped in emotions. We do our best to try to, um, uh, to, to drive performance by removing emotion from a lot of the decision-making decision process along the way. But that's why it's, you know, for a lot of people, and, and I'd put myself in this category. I mean, I've, I mean, I'm old, so I've got, you know, years of trying to learn from these mistakes, literally. And what am I learning? I'm learning how to manage that emotion, really. I mean, essentially, you know, buy, sell points, that kind of thing. But that's why it's better to deal with a professional like yourself, because you're not as near as emotionally attached to somebody's, you know, all their emotions around money. You know, I, I think, is it love and money? And then I realized it was money because people divorce, <laughs> o- divorce over money. Yes, you know? yeah. So Well, that's right. That's why dealing with someone like yourself, though, because you can help remove that emotion. I mean, you can't force them to do something, but still, it, it helps to get a pragmatic view that way. Well, that's, that, that's right. And it's not just by removing the emotion. It's also there's process that we use. Yeah. Uh, when we build portfolio managers that even even uh, reduces our emotional um, uh, attachments to the portfolios that we run for clients because um, if you have a very strict discipline process uh, then and you're sticking to it on a regular basis then it reduces the emotion of even the managers and we manage all of our portfolios with an investment committee of four individuals and so we have to sort of battle it out to uh, to make changes to the portfolio, but even there, it's inside of the confines of a strict structure, which you know I can go through in a, in a little bit. But um, you know, just looking at 2022, you can see where you know emotions had the impact on the market. I mean, it was really one for the ages. Um, you know, absolute mayhem out there as irresponsible government and central banks washed. Um, you know, they they're they're decisions washed through the economies and the markets. And I think it was only the third time in history that all major stock markets and bond markets were negative. Uh, bonds, in fact, had their worst year on record um, as rates spiked. And we can certainly chat about that. But, you know, if we take a look at, at NASDAQ as an example, NASDAQ was down 32% over 2022. The S&P 500, the vaunted S&P 500, down almost 20%, 19%. Uh, the TSX venture down 40%. Global equities across the board were down 19.6, almost 20%. In fact, the best performing index was the Canadian market, and that was because of the heavy exposure to oil and gas. I mean, that's in fact that's really what saved the the TSX. It only lost uh, just about 8.7 or 8.8%. So, relatively uh, limited. But you know, look at these numbers are, are unbelievable. If we take a look at bonds. Uh, Canada 20-year government bonds down 33% in 2022. U.S. 20-year government bonds down 36% in 2022. I mean, these are numbers that 
that that have blown portfolios absolutely out of the water. And that's the part that has been so difficult, this unusual thing. You know, the sort of standard is you have bonds in your portfolio to offset when bond, when stocks go down. You know, I mean, yes. that was what was supposed to happen, provide some balance in the ultimate returns. Well, as you just said, 2022 obliterated that. You got killed in bonds, you got killed in stocks. Yeah. You know, and uh, now let me ask you this uh, quickly, coming back to a portfolio about stocks. Now, I know you're going to be at the World Outlook Conference. You're mm-hmm. going to get into what, you know, further, obviously, into this. But so did, would you characterize this as a stock pickers market, like much more emphasis on what stocks you're in as opposed to, you know, if you went into 2020 into 21, just get the whole market kind of thing. You didn't have to be too picky about what you were in. Uh, do you feel yes. that's changed now? Absolutely. And, and, you know, we has a, it completely has changed. And, and we as a, as a investment management group are agnostic as to whether or not this is a beta market where we, you just buy the market, you buy the indexes and it goes up or it's a stock pickers market because we do both. Um, and we emphasize one versus the other, depending upon what sort of a market that we're going into. But there's no question that index investors were um, were mauled in 2022. And as we come out of this, there's no easy fix. This isn't 2008 where the government rides in on its horse and throws money at the situation, artificially pushing down interest rates. That's not going to happen. There's a lot of sovereign debt issues. Um, There's a lot of other economic problems, obviously inflation being a big one. So it's going to be a minefield, but it's also, there's a lot of opportunity at the same time that's, that's been developed that, that, that has, is presenting itself to us. And that primarily is by getting down into the weeds and selecting the right part of the market that you want to be in and then the right individual securities that you wish to be in as well. Uh, give me, and I don't want to, you know, uh, preempt what you're going to say at the outlook because you'll have a little more time and more depth. Give me an example of something that you look at that sort of reflects that bigger view that you have. Uh, in, in for 2023, do you mean, Michael? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we, I think we've, we've got to be careful not to fight last year's battles. And one of the issues is obviously is that inflation is, is, is the overriding economic issue that needs to be dealt with. But the truth is, is investors should have been terrified about imped, impending inflation in 2021 and 2022 uh, at the beginnings of, of those years, which, by the way, we did, as you know, we warned your audience about that at the Outlook Conference and in other appearances as well, too, over the past two years. Uh, now, inflation, I mean, it remains a significant problem. There's, there's no doubt about that. But some inflationary pressures are abating somewhat. Um, there are, you know, lumber, for instance, is, and, and there are others, are, is coming down. Uh, in June of 2022, um, this year, or last year, rather, we, we saw the recent peak of inflation of just over 8% in Canada. Now it's about 6%. Now, the question going forward is how sticky will inflation be? Um, you know, labor costs are a problem. They're they're going to be difficult to moderate. Um, that's going to be that's going to be tough. I think that's going to be the, the biggest issue. In fact, um, is going to be overcoming labor cost increases, and a recession is extremely likely. Um, but it's you know, whether or not we go into a recession or not is actually less important, because the real damage has been the economy slowing from four point eight percent growth to likely zero or worse if we if we are, are indeed in a recession already. Um, so a recession, whether or not we go into one, technically is not all that important. Although, it, you know, recessions live in the minds of individuals and they can be exacerbated when people start to believe that we're in some hellish economic um, environment. Um, 
But, you know, overall, the economic and, and, and market environment has changed dramatically. We're in a completely different weather system um, than the one that persisted from the financial crisis in 2008, 15 years ago until very recently. In, during that entire period, and you've, I think you've, you've, you've done well to highlight this, over-speculation, bubbles, silly ideas, effectively, were rewarded by the central banks um, with artificially lower interest rates. Uh, and more printed money. But the topography from that point going forward is going to be entirely different. Um, now, with money having a price on it, um, the market is, is normalizing. The economy is normalizing to a, to a certain degree. Um, and that means that it'll become more rational, more honest, uh, and really more Darwinian. And we don't think that's a bad thing. We really don't. Um, so, you know, anytime there's change like this, there's going to be opportunities that present themselves. And I, I've heard a couple of your other guests at, at, on, in different weeks um, discuss the same concept, but it's, it's very true. And, and this is the stock picking part to it. There's a large number of companies out there that have great balance sheets, that have tremendous growth prospects and are growing now. They've got good dividends and they've fallen for no reason besides the fact that they're simply stocks. Um, to, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% below what a normalized valuation would be and in a normalized environment. And that's going to pay dividends by adding them now. So deployment's going to be key. Ironically, you know, we've under we've underheld bonds and restricted the model portfolios because um, of all of the risks with bonds. That's why I've hated and screamed about 60, 40 portfolios and the idiocy of those things over the years. But um, bonds and, and preferred stocks and other yield vehicles look interesting for the first time to us in, in well over a decade. Um, so there's some opportunities there. There's no question. Um, energy still looks strong. Oil and gas energy. I'm, I'm talking about real energy, not intermittent energy. Uh, new and emerging um, opportunities are, are being developed in AI and nuclear energy at this point is beginning to look extremely interesting to us. So we're looking forward to you know, discussing all of those things at the World Outlook Conference in a couple of weeks. But I, 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 I want to say one word of, of caution here, Michael, is that there's a lot of well-known growth companies that, that we've all heard of. I, um, you know, you look at um, Meta, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, Netflix, Shopify, Bitcoin. A lot of these things are down, you know, 40, 50, 60, it's 70, over 70 percent in many cases. Um, and people have to understand the economics suggest that we could still get cut in half on those positions from here going forward you know with money costing a significant uh, dollar amount profits just not being generated you could lose another 50 percent of your money by buying those stocks so that's a critical issue i'm really glad you're putting that up and I, i've been thinking about the environment we're in or, or we're in we're in but yeah. it's a better time for people like you it was not a, somebody with expertise environment because you could throw a dart at any aggressive tech company that had no earnings but promised that they were going to get to mars mine it you know and refine it and <laughs> yes. it, you know i mean anything went and i yeah. always felt that was a more difficult environment for me personally too that people ask me you know am, am i a buyer of you know, some tech stock that's already tripled or quadrupled or even gone even further. And I'm going, you know, I, I, there's no analysis that supports it. So I don't know what to do. So I think it's actually come to a time when people can display their expertise when it comes to understanding the markets. As you said, 
the world's change, you should change. You know, understanding the specifics of stocks that are going to uh, have a better chance, you know, as you say, understanding their balance sheet. So I, I, I'm looking forward to it at the World Outlook Conference because there, you know, could you pick a better time when I could say there's food for thought? You know, we have had this, uh, we talked earlier uh, you know, about oil and gas and about that whole world's changed. Well, the whole world has changed. You know, cheap energy's gone, cheap labor's gone, cheap money's gone. It's a stock picker's time. That's why I encourage people to come and listen to Neil McIver at the World Outlook Conference because, uh, as I say, fascinating time. There are opportunities, but there are things to be careful of. So, Neil, I'm going, I'm going on and on, but I really want to say thank you today and look forward to hearing you at the World Outlook Conference. My pleasure, Michael. I'm so excited. By the way, the lineup that you guys have organized is fantastic. The speakers are unbelievable. I think the best year ever. So we're incredibly excited to be there and to share our thoughts with everybody. Uh, but we're also excited to be there as participants listening to what others have to say. It's going to be fantastic. Well, just remember, Neil McIver is founder of McIver Capital Management at CG Wealth. Neil, thank you. Thank you. Time now for the shocking stat of the week, and it has huge implications. This year, for the first time, 2023, Canada's going to actually have more seniors than children. According to the chief actuary, Asiya Billig, in the latest report on old age security, Canada's going to have 7,663,000 pensioners, but only 7,471,000 children. I mean, the part that has significant implications for government is, though, the number of beneficiaries of the old age security basic pension. You know, of course, we have an aging population. It's projected to increase by over 53% in the next 12 years. We're going to have something like 10, 11 million collecting old age security by 2035. And here's the thing. They're going to be collecting those benefits for longer than ever before. And they come straight out of general revenues. Now, keep in mind, when old age security was introduced in 1952, the average life expectancy was 69. Today, it's 83 and rising. Extended life expectancies and seniors outnumbering children, well, that wasn't taken into account when both the Canada Pension and Old Age Security were conceived and introduced, which means an increasing amount of government revenues is going to go to seniors for Old Age Security to pay those benefits, despite the fact, the regularly overlooked fact, that seniors represent the wealthiest cohort in the country in the population. And those payouts are going to take place at the same time, though, as seniors eat up an increasing proportion of health care expenses. And as today's children pay interest on the government debt, we've already racked up. Fortunately for seniors, though, our education system makes a point of keeping our young people in the dark, whether we're talking about their own finances, but especially government finances or the economy and the taxes they're going to have to pay. You know, otherwise, we may have a generational war on our hands. Well, we got the December inflation number coming in at, what, 6.3%. That was down from November, so we are slowly creeping down. I want to bring Mike Levy in here with me. Mike, I just want to start by reminding people what inflation measures, and I know you sort of you know, roll your eyes, but it's the rate of increase. It's not talking about whether, you know, it talks about prices going up, but don't think when inflation gets back down to three or two, 
in any way that means the prices drop. No, it just means the rate of increase slows down. So we're at 6.3. There was some good news in that in terms of lower inflation and also some other items that shows that the Bank of Canada doesn't have much influence on. But let me just get your quick take when you saw that number. Well, the first thing I did was look, Mike, to see what drove it down that half a percent, the increase down half a percent. And, you know, it's solely on the back of cheaper gasoline prices. They plunged 13 percent. Well, that's an integral part of a CPI is gasoline prices. And when they go down, it's, it's going to put downward pressure. But on the other side, grocery prices, and you and I have been talking about this and Everybody who's listening to us knows about grocery prices because it's just the impact when you walk into a supermarket specialty store. They were up a whopping 11% in December, and that's down from 11.5% in November. But grocery prices certainly staying right up there, Mike. Yeah, and we're going to keep getting that gas impact, by the way, because keep in mind, we're going to be comparing now to January of last year when gas prices were on the way up. We'll be comparing to February, March, when they were really high as we go into uh, the second quarter. So that part of the inflation uh, formula is going to reflect the same thing. It's going to keep inflation down compared to the year earlier. Let me come to fluid for a second. If people stand back and think, okay, so how are we trying to fight inflation? We're trying to fight inflation. The Bank of Canada says, if I raise interest rates enough, that will discourage buying. And that may be true, whether I'm talking about a vacation or a big ticket item or some other items. But you know what? Certainly isn't food. People don't say, gee, the Bank of Canada has raised borrowing rates. I'm not going to eat. So I'm not surprised that uh, food is sort of outside of the kin of the Bank of Canada. They're not going to get that down through raising interest rates. And one other thing, Mike, when you're talking about rates going up significantly, rates costs going up considerably, mortgage interest costs jumped 18% year over year on the account of the rapid rise in borrowing rates. Rents are up 5.8%, and mortgages are now the largest contributor to the annual rate of inflation with rents, the third largest. And boy, I know that people are realizing and knowing that. And the other thing is, this is where it gets real. I mean, forgive the cliche, but this is where it gets real. The average Canadian family makes uh, household makes about $1,451 per week, okay? Well, if yeah. you've got, you know, a 6.3% inflation, that means you're paying about $91 more this week than you did for the same goods last year at this time. Okay, here's the thing. If we stay at this level, you know, at 6.3, and hopefully we won't, but I just want to translate that. I mean, that 91 bucks per week works out to about $4,800 per year after tax. But then I looked at it and I thought, well, what if inflation does drop? Well, if we average 3% this year, we're not getting out of it. I mean, it's a lot of hardship because that's $2,200 extra in 2023 if we average 3% for the same stuff we bought a year ago. So yeah. this is a hard, you know, this is why inflation gets right down to so many people. And that's what we're seeing in, in polls and that kind of stuff. Well, you know, the Bank of Canada has got a tough job and an easy job. I'm going to say all central banks do, but let's talk, look at the Bank of Canada. Uh, the tough job for the bank is turning around inflation, which they may have succeeded in doing by the numbers we're getting, or at least easing off or leveling out. And they did that by raising rates at a level which they have done, which is a, just inflicted significant pain. The easy job for the Bank of Canada is, A, they could overdo it. Easy job is, 
all, if they've gone too far, all they have to do is lower rates. They don't have to do anything else. Lower rates, and that's going to do it, lower interest rates. But they have to get to that point, as you said, Mike, where there is a turnaround and it's on the way down. And if it's on the way down and they're finding it still so significantly impactful on Canadian families, they can easily lower the rates. But let's come back to something else, there's something you just said, just uh, highlighted. What's one of the big or the biggest problem in this uh, December's numbers is that rise in mortgage rates. It represents about 0.6 of a percent of the whole inflation, you know, scenario. So an 18% jump compared, and, and people are looking at me going, 18%, where do I sign for that? You know, and this is the trouble. These are such broad-based statistics going across the country, so many categories, but it still gives you the direction. Mortgages just became a heck of a lot more expensive. And again, uh, we'll have to see when that eases off, but I'm seeing the consensus now going right through 2023, even if we don't continue to hike rates, which most people think we will next week. Uh, absolutely. And there, I so agree with you. But Mike, one other thing just before we go, the um, business survey uh, and consumer survey came out from the Bank of Canada uh, just this past week um, or, or the end of last week. No, j just this past week. And the majority of uh, respondents see a recession in the next year, in the next year. To me, it looks like it's going to come earliest the end of this year or the beginning of 2024, I don't think we're going to see actual recessionary numbers, negative numbers throughout this year, because what we're doing now is going through the impact, but the actual recession might be 10, 11, 12 months out. And I think that's something to keep in mind also. Well, that's the big debate in finance today, and it's been the big debate, and it's a rolling number, I find, with uh, you know the consensus of economists. But still, I was looking at a number in the state's Bloomberg survey of economists down there, which 68% said a recession this year. But as you say, that timeline for the recession seems to be moving forward, like further out as we go. Obviously, we'll be here to chronicle it. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Have a great week. And you too. And remember, I'm coming home for the World Outlook Conference, and I'm warning you about that, Campbell. I'll yeah, be there in I'm, person also. You know what? I think that'll be terrific <laughs> to have you back. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're thrilled to be there in person. I hope people come up and chat with you, uh, you know, uh, and uh, lots of questions, lots of things to talk about. So I'm glad you're coming. And uh, we'll see you on February 3rd and February 4th, Western Bayshore, Vancouver. We got the All-Star team. The Money Talks All-Stars will all be there. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. I'm going to go live to the trading desk now. Always looking forward to get a chance to chat with Victor Dare. If you don't know Victor, just so you know, Victor's got, he's not even going to like me saying this, how many decades in the markets, but he's, let's just put, he's got a lot of decades and I'm talking four or five decades in the market. But what he does is he's, and the other thing characteristic he brings is an honesty to his own approach. That's how you grow as an investor that you don't BS yourself about what's going on in the market. And that's what professionals do. That's why I'm always interested to chat with Vic. And Victor, first of all, appreciate the time. But I want to start with a subject we've been chatting about. Uh, we've been watching that gold move. You've been identifying that gold move. And, uh, you know, of course, we've got a lot of gold bugs going. It's about time. Other people saying, I wish I was in it. But give me your take right now. Well, we've had the gold price rally about $325 since the end of September. And there's, let's say, two things that happened at the end of September. The U.S. dollar hit a 20-year, that's the U.S. dollar index, hit a 20-year high, 
you know, you had the British pound at 37-year lows, the Japanese yen at 32-year lows, the euro at 20-year lows. I mean, king dollar was ruling the roost at the end of September. And in an environment where you have a really strong U.S. dollar, that's just not a good environment for gold. And if you went back to about this time a year ago, when the Russians had invaded Ukraine, the gold price spiked to a new all-time high at $2,080. And then, for the next several months until that low in September, it fell and it kind of drifted off $450. So I think it was we were in September, the environment was gold had been like given up for dead almost. You know, it was sold out. And then we got this spark of a, of a weaker U.S. dollar. You know, it's interesting, eh, Vic, and, and just in case people don't have as much experience, uh, I just am smiling. You know when something makes a move, either direction, then all you start reading is it's going to get to an extreme. I remember when oil went to 147, I could read from some analysts it was going to 400 at that moment. Or if when gold dropped down, as you say, over the last several months into September or, you know, sort of from that uh, March into September period, I'm just smiling thinking that's when you start getting going, well, gold's going to 900 again. You know, gold's going to 1,200. I'm just letting people know the market sort of noise conspires against you taking action. You know, whether it's on the sell side, well, right now it's going to 8,000. You know, I, I just smile uh, thinking about that because we got to that September period. And I know some people have sort of held off even taking a moderate position, you know, a, a partial position because they were sure it was going to 1,500. Well, you know, there was good reason to be negative. I mean, there's the, the gold futures market. There's the physical bullion market. And a market that I like to pay attention to, I think it's kind of in the middle, is the gold ETF market. That's not gold, ETF gold shares, but bullion. And uh, for the last two years, outside of that spike of buying that happened around the Russian invasion, there had been basically nothing but selling or net selling of about 400 tons of gold. Like the investment world was thinking, hey, gold's boring. There's other things to do and so on and so on. So the market had truly got sold out. And that spike that we had on the Russian invasion, Martin Mirenbeel, who was our go-to gold expert, you know, he likes to refer to those sort of things as geopolitical risk events that are, you just can't predict. They're almost like black swans. You know, I mean, surely the week or two before the Russians moved into Ukraine, yes, people said it was going to happen. But I think when they really did it, the market was hugely surprised and the gold price jumped higher. Let alone the response to that, too. The, you know, the sanctions, the more coordinated sanctions, even though, for example, oil didn't kick in until December, there still was, I think, more uh, coordination than was anticipated going into that event. But, uh, so again, let's come back to today. Will there be a point now you're trading and this is why I love always having you on and chatting because I'm the investor, you're the trader, you know, uh, do you think, have you seen enough to say the next leg of a bull market is upon us or, or what would you look for that way? And again, unfortunately I'm talking a bit more as a, an investor, a, a, you know, longer term, I'm taking a position. Right. So when I look at the $325 rally we've had here, it's almost like it's been a stealth rally. Uh, there's been an increase in the open interest in the gold market. There's been an, an increase in the, the speculative holdings of gold, but it hasn't been dramatic. Uh, and, and if I look at the gold ETF market, 
it's been like a, a nothing burger. You know, there's been really no buying over there. So it's when I say it looks like a stealth rally, it's almost as if people that would normally be, you know, macro tourists going from one thing to the other in the market haven't noticed that there's been a 20% or so rally in the gold price, a 30% rally in the silver market. And uh, let's say if you look at the GDX as a surrogate for the, um, uh, the, the whole gold mining share, we're, we're up about 40, 45% there. But it, 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 it seems to have happened without any fanfare. And one final thing is this 300 and so dollar rally seems to be way more than just been justified by a weaker U.S. dollar. And certainly there hasn't been any real support for the gold move by uh, in the interest rate market. So, yeah, I'm I'm a oh, and there's one final thing that tells me when I look at this his over the last number of years, when the gold price rallies, option volatility in the gold market jumps. Now, in the stock market, when the stock market falls, option volatility jumps. And that's a sign of stress. So I don't see any uh, option market telling us there's any stress, any urgency to get into the gold market. It's just quietly climbing here virtually every week for the past nine, 10 weeks. It's just a fascinating thing. I mean, gold has an emotional attachment for many people. It's a different category, as does Bitcoin, I sense, because being a reflection of people's distrust of government. You know, gold has always had that thing, an alternative currency that they can't print up the way they could U.S. dollars and Canadian dollars and euros, etc. So I always find the analysis of it a little bit difficult. And I sort of sit back and say, OK, so what could propel it higher on the shorter term? Or have we had a sea change in people's attitude finally saying, hey, we all agree this money printing is going to end up nowhere good? Well, you just said the magic words. And um when I say it's a stealth buying, so there, there's not the, 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 the retail panic to get into gold. I don't see that at all. So other than, you know, certainly central banks are buying, and I kicked this idea around Martin Muirbeel to give him full credit for making it so simple. I think it could be what we call real money buying, where they do see a sea change here. And the, the real sea change that we're seeing is there's a lot more debt in the world and the cost of servicing that debt has gone up. And there's a possibility now, a greater maybe than the last few years, that some of the big foreign owners of bonds, the American bonds I'm talking, and that is Japan and China, they might start selling some of their bonds. And given that the countries of the world are going to be going, you know, printing so many more bonds, we could see interest rates starting to jump. And then the central banks printing more money to try to keep interest rates down. And I mean, that is a green light special environment for the gold market. And I just add this is what, what we've seen. And this is why the theme on Money Talks has been the theme at the Outlook Conference. What are we going to do to protect your buying power, that paper you old called dollars? You know, and look out five years, what's going to happen? I agree. I think that it's a toxic mix. But what the other thing I just add, next time I chat with Martin, I'll share it with him. But look at how they've responded to every single major problem, print up cash, whether it was pandemic, whether it's uh, pension problems in the UK, whether it's energy prices going through the roof in, um, sorry, in Europe, Japan defending its, you know, its interest rates, its currency, that kind of stuff, how much money. They're just printing it up. 
and that's the long-term argument for gold. So obviously we'll be there. And this is why, by the way, people should come and find Victor Adair at the Outlook Conference. <laughs> you know, he's going to be on the wrap-up wrap panel too, but find him, your chance to chat, take advantage of his, uh, well, I'm not going to say it, Vic, okay? Longish term in the investment markets. Vic, thanks very much for taking the time. I remind people to go to victoradair.ca. Thanks, Mike. I look forward to seeing you and everybody else at the World Outlook Conference uh, at February 3 and 4 at the Bayshore Hotel in Vancouver. Yep. All you have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can get your tickets there, click on the event button, that kind of thing. I'll take a break, but just take, I'm not going to take a break. I'm going to take a few seconds here, and I'm going to come back with a knock-your-head-off goofy. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, I guess it's not a surprise that climate change still tops the agenda of the World Economic Forum. I mean, who can blame them given how well playing the climate catastrophe card seems to go, at least among all the people they know and for politicians who attend. I mean, climate alarmism plays well for many voters, obviously, for whom the failed litany of climate catastrophe predictions doesn't seem to bother them at all. So it's on to the next one. And no one seems to have personally parlayed the alarmism, by the way, into more personal wealth than Al Gore, who at this year's WEF warned, I think it was just on Wednesday, warned of boiling oceans and rain bombs. He went on to say, in quotes, we're still putting 162 million tons of greenhouse gas into the atmosphere every single day, which traps an equivalent amount of heat as the extra heat released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every day. Boy, the hyperbole. It's a familiar refrain, though, for someone who also predicted, by the way, in his film Inconvenient Truth, that Mount Kilimanjaro's glaciers would disappear by 2016, and the Arctic summers would be ice-free as soon as 2014. I mean, what's noteworthy is that no one in the audience laughed when he said we're going to get boiling water. I mean, it's incredible. Maybe not a surprise, by, by the way, but given just a few hours earlier, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke about, in his words, the horror story. His words, the death sentence of climate change, saying that every week brings new climate horror stories. Or as he put it at COP27 just a short while ago, we are on the highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. You know, what's clear is the fear-mongering is still the go-to approach, is my point, when talking about climate change. As for Mr. Gore, well, why not? He has made a fortune from it. As M. Knight Shanahan, uh, Shyamalan, uh, Stephen King, they can all attest, horror stories pay. When former B, think about this, when former Vice President Gore ran for president in 1988, he had to list his net worth. He put it down as $1.7 million. You know what, today? It's estimated about $330 million, of which the vast majority can be attributed to his claim uh, is climate-related activities, including he gets paid $200,000 a speech. And I don't think the speech has changed. $2 million per month. Think about that. Well, that one just blew me away. $2 million per month, and in his words, being a figurehead. That's his words. He's a figurehead for the Green Investment Firm that he helped start Generation Investment. Now, the firm is estimated to be worth about $36 million. But come on. I come back to this, though, because I do speaking, $200,000 per speech for the same we're all going to die theme that he's been able to push for 16 years. Not bad. And by the way, this is in a year when ESG claims are coming under fire. I'm going to finish with this. So the results of a nine-month investigation by The Guardian, the German weekly Die Zeit, 
and nonprofit investigative journalist organization source material. The investigation concluded, it should have been my shocking stat maybe, that 90% of the rainforest carbon offsets provided by the firm Vera, that's the world's leading provider, and bought and used by huge corporations, I mean Disney or Gucci or Shell, are largely worthless. 90% of them. Wow. Uh, we'll fire under that, uh, file that under to be continued. Or it's about time we got past virtue signaling maybe and instead measure whether our climate action policies actually do anything. But now I guess I'm talking crazy. But back to my salute to Al Gore, worth over $330 million. That's all the time we have today. Hey, a reminder, of course, I hope you're making plans to join us at the World Outlook Conference. Um, it's funny, Neil McIver earlier in the show says best best sort of array of speakers and topics we've ever had. And I think it's coming at a time, though, a pivotal time. You know, I've been talking about historic change, but you've started to experience it. Don't think it's over. You experience it by way of like an inv- uh, interest rates going up 1,700% from March. I think that, and by the way, another one coming up, uh, it looks like this week on Wednesday, another boost, maybe a quarter percent, a quarter point more coming in the States. But my point is, it's a reflection of historic change. Look at how the price movements are getting. People have been absolutely directly hit when they watched their asset, their most valuable asset in housing, as Ozzy talked about. You can't afford to fall asleep on this stuff. It's an easy thing to do. Come and get some of the perspective of some of the top analysts, literally in the English-speaking world. You'll do that February 3rd and 4th. Hey, make a weekend of it. Come and have some fun at the World Outlook Conference. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. mikesmoneytalks.ca. Click on the event button, and I hope I see you there. In the meantime, remember, Money Talks tweets. Tell your friends about it. All I'm doing on Money Talks tweets and on uh, Michael Campbell's Money Talks Facebook page and on mikesmoneytalks.ca is trying to give you some data, some perspectives that you're not getting in the mainstream media. You then do what you want with it. You change your mind, not change your mind, form an opinion. I think it's important to get as many of the facts as you can. In the meantime, have a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.